for have UPS call and say, we can't find you, but FedEx, it seems like every second or third or fourth package you hear from them. And uh, if you go through 30 minutes of getting on their national line, uh, it's a nightmare. And then they still don't know. Uh, if you put the HC65, so many people, businesses across the country, don't understand that. They think it's a post office box. Uh, and if, if you put that HC65 in your box... If under it, you'll put another address line, 2280 East, 3200 South. That helps them a lot. For some reason, they have that in their system or in their uh, satellite stuff. But I had a package due, and they sent me a note that they couldn't find me. And then the package, I think, came... And then I got another note, I didn't know that they were the same package, uh, saying that I had to go locally. Well, they didn't say anything, no phone number, no nothing. I just got the address there in Hurricane off the package. So I go there, and it's locked, of course. It's their warehouse area. And uh, let them know I needed to pick up a package, which turned out, or have already come, but that's beside the point. Uh, but I talked to a girl who was very friendly and very helpful. And she gave me her name and her phone number and told me to pass it along to you so that if you ever have problems with FedEx, call her on her local number. She knows where we are. She knows about the Quonset. She knows the whole story. And she says, I'll expedite it. And if if the drivers can't find you, I can let them know. So she says, we do get a lot of new drivers who have no clue, which I'm sure is true. But uh, nonetheless, you, you might remember her name. <laughs> she told me she was the uh, fifth daughter in the family. Her dad was wanting a son really badly. And when she turned out to be a girl, he just threw up his hands and said, name her Charlie. So if you call, this number, Charlie, will answer. Uh, I didn't see the Charlie at first. It's C-H-A-R-L-E-E. -E. Her mother spelled Charlie like a feminine name. C-H-A-R-L-E-E -E is her name. And her number is 435-627-9761. Nine seven six one. So I anticipate we'll have more trouble with Fed, FedEx. Uh, so I put her number in my phone just in case. Now that aside, uh, I'll give you a little update on Shirley. I was able to see her, I think, every day this week, and Charnell's been in there, I think, every day. And might have missed one time. She's with her today to to help tune in. And uh, I get some calls from Shirley once in a while. She's uh, she's doing okay. Uh, she did learn not to fight the the hospital staff uh, and and resist. And she's cooperating now and doing really well with them. And they're doing a a great job of taking care of her. So she's okay in that way. Uh, 
They still haven't figured out what's causing those sores on her legs for sure. Uh, everybody that's looked at it over the years that I know of is in the medical profession anywhere else has said it's a circulation problem. And to some degree it may be, uh, but they haven't fully gotten that figured out yet. They they have a really fancy, expensive machine in there that they run over your extremity or wherever, uh, or foot. And wherever it goes, it sounds like thunder. It's kind of an interesting thing to listen to, but they went over her feet over and over again. And uh, the report showed that there's plenty of circulation down there. The, uh, In fact, the doctor told me that if there hadn't been good circulation down there, she'd have lost the foot a long time ago, uh, from the looks of it. And then they thought it was, uh, uh, and oh, the first thing was that there was no infection. I think I told you that last week. There's no infection there that they can detect of any kind. So that ruled that out. Uh, and then as to the cause, it wasn't a circulation problem particularly. So now they've run some tests uh, about autoimmune system and whether or not it might be the body fighting itself. Uh, the test results are not back on that yet, so that's still up in the air. But the vascular doctor did tell me that they were considering surgery this coming Tuesday. He didn't say for sure, but he says we're thinking about it. Uh, because he says even though the, the blood is getting down to the feet, fine, she has some very large veins, and that the heart may be having trouble pumping the blood up in those large veins. There's, there's too, much, too much area there, so it needs constricted so that the heart pumping will bring it up through a smaller uh, vessel uh, instead of just kind of sitting there. So that could be uh, part of the problem. And whether her sons and she will uh, submit to that, I don't know. That's completely out of my jurisdiction whatsoever. Uh, her sons, at this point, will have to get together and make some decisions about what to allow and what not to allow and so on. And then her, her input and whatever she says may have some effect on it, too. I don't know. But they do recognize that there's uh, considerable... Uh, dementia involved and uh, that they're taking into consideration as well because she gets pretty confused and so on sometimes. I mean, her, sometimes her mind is quite clear, fairly lucid, and she thinks fine, and I think we've experienced that here, and then sometimes it's pretty murky. So they're dealing with the whole thing, but overall she's doing pretty well. She's a little weak. They're trying to uh, feed her and, and get some nutrition in her, and, and uh, they've hydrated her, so her, her hands are, well, I wouldn't call them puffy, but they're, they look more normal instead of like there's no water there. So there's, there's some good signs and, and all, so hopefully things will get better and she can get out of there before too long. I know she wants out. And I don't blame her. If I was there, I'd want out too. <laughs> That's, I think that would be true of any of us. But uh, she's adapted and she's doing pretty well. But I, I can't report much else 
they, they're trying to sort out what truly is causing the problem so that that can be treated as opposed to treating it wrong because you don't know what's going on. So that's a process that they're not done with yet. It's kind of complicated, I guess. But it, it made sense to me that maybe the veins being too large was causing it to heart difficulty in pumping it uphill. You know, anytime you got a small straw, if you have a straw this big around, it sucks pretty easy. But if you had a straw that big around, it'd be hard to suck stuff up with. That's that's what we're dealing with, I think. Uh, but then my medical knowledge is neither here nor there, but that's kind of what I got out of what the doctor explained to me. So that's something to pray about, uh, whether or not that gets done or not, or because he says what we were thinking of doing was tying tying up some of the veins uh, so that uh, it restricts and, and helps helps the flow. That's the, the best way I know how to say it. Uh, some of you have asked about yesterday. I was, I was on my way up to see Shirley, and I was there between the hospital and Harmon's where you make the left turn. So I got over in the left-hand lane, and there was an accident actually right at the light. So the traffic was backed up pretty good in those two lanes by Harmon's. Uh, but I got over in the left lane and was going to go down and, and make that left turn. And uh, a guy was, I guess, in a hurry, but he, he had people move back or whatever he had to do. And so he came on through two lanes of traffic and stuck his nose into the left turn lane. Of course, he couldn't see as he came in there. He stuck his nose out before he could see past the cars and started trying to make a left turn. And I was coming down the turn lane, so we basically had a head-on right in the middle of my car and, and the left front corner of his car as he was trying to turn. Uh, so I, I think they gave him a ticket uh, for coming across there. You know, I've done that a few times, kind of work your way through. People will let you in, they'll back up, or they'll stop in time and let you through. But the problem is, you come through there, and the nose of your car is out before you can see what's coming, which is what happened to him. So uh, it banged it up pretty good, but it's, I think it's fixable. I've got it out here on a, on a trailer, start looking at it tomorrow and see. Uh, I had a, an estimate done at the Buick place, but... We couldn't get the hood up yet. We don't know what it is underneath. It will start and run, though. Even though the radiator's mashed, you can't can't go very far before it got hot. But anyway, no no injuries on either side, and uh, I do appreciate the prayers that go up between us all and among us all and for us all. Uh, that even though we have difficulties, uh, God preserves us and. Uh, protects us and helps us, and uh, I, I do believe he's there. But things happen. I'm <laughs> just, uh, you know, whatever it might be, things happen in life. But we'll, we'll make it. God will be with us. I think that's all to, to visit about along those lines then. Uh, let's get into the Bible. We were on uh, the scripture in Matthew 5 that says, The pure shall see God. Something we all look forward to when the resurrection occurs and he comes back. Uh, we want to be sure that we're one of those that sees him. 
in his glory as, as even we are glorified. But let's examine this. This is a very major subject. Uh, all the attitudes and the approaches that he says we ought to have there in that teaching that he gave his disciples, that was just one teaching to them. And you can only say so much in one speech or one teaching session. But we have the rest of the Bible to examine in light of the few things that he said there to give us a bigger picture of whatever it is he was talking about. And that's why I've been taking more time with each one of these verses is to expand it and see what else in the Bible impacts what he said and maybe give us a better idea of what he expects and how he wants us to go about it. So we'll do, we'll do some more on the purity thing today. First Timothy 4. And verse 12, Paul's writing to Timothy, who was a, a young evangelist, it says, and he said, let no man despise your youth. He had grown up in the truth, but he was still a very young man, and here he was pastoring churches, and that presents its own difficulties as far as that's concerned. I, I know, I took over a church at a tender age of barely being 22, and... Uh, all the stuff I thought I knew I had no real experience in yet. Thankfully, I did have the Bible to refer to, but my life experience was not all that great at that time. So he had issues that he had to, to deal with. So Paul said, don't let anybody despise your youth. But be an example of the believers in the things you say, or in your words, in your conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, all very, very major items, all those things, and in purity. So his thinking needed to be pure. It needed to be clean. It needed to be right. And that's something that we have opportunity to work on each and every day. Nobody really can read our minds. Uh, a lot of people think they can read your mind. They know what you're thinking, and, and they... Uh, attribute motives to you and everything else. But we don't really know, and only God knows the heart. So this is a very personal issue. Uh, what you say, they hear. What you do, they may see. But what you're thinking is within your own mind, and in your own mind only. So this is a highly personal part of a very, very important issue that we're to think like Christ and to think in purity. His word is pure. And if we're thinking according to it, then our thoughts are pure. If we're thinking uh, along the world's way or our human way or the Satan's way, that's not pure. <laughs> that's impure. That's bad. So that was one of the issues that... Paul told him to be very careful of. And one similar to that, we'll get here in just a moment. Let's look at 5 and verse 2. Uh, remember again, he's a young man. Well, let's start in verse 1. He says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. 
Because in years, Timothy was a young man, even though he may have had a, a great deal of spiritual maturity. Still in all, if somebody was 10, 20, 30, 40 years older than him, uh, he needed to recognize their age, their experience, and to entreat them rather than get on them uh, too much. But there were times where he said to Timothy, even in this book, to rebuke them soundly. So there's a time to rebuke. And there's a time to entreat. Uh, generally, to entreat or to encourage is better. But sometimes when things get out of hand, you have to take it a step harder and harsher, depending on the circumstance and the attitudes that are involved. But generally speaking, as a daily process, to entreat someone considerably older was the best way. And the younger men as brothers... Uh, there's a difference between somebody 40 years older than you and someone about your age, and you treat them as brothers. And the elder women as mothers, so he was young enough for older women to just treat them like his own mother. And the younger as sisters with all purity. So he was young, and there were young women, and he was to treat them like they were his sisters, and you treat your sisters generally, if you're raised right at all, with respect and with love. Uh, and yet, uh, if they're not your sister, then it's a little different situation. So he says, treat them as sisters, but in all purity, controlling your thoughts because they can easily go where they shouldn't go. So he encouraged him as a young man to be sure that his thoughts were pure toward the women who were younger as he was. Now let's go to Titus 1. Now, here he's writing to Titus, and he's talking about some of the Jews who were uh, there in the church or uh, close to the church. And uh, he was talking about the problems that the people there were having. And he confirmed that the witness against them was true in verse 13. So he says, wherefore, rebuke them sharply, <clears throat> that they may be sound in the faith. So even though he had entreated Timothy to, to treat the older men with respect, here there's no difference made in age, whether they were young or old. <laughs> if they were into false doctrine, he was to, in, to rebuke them sharply. <clears throat> And that means what it says. That they may be sound in the faith. <laughs> Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. <laughs> then he makes some interesting dialogue here, or monologue. Unto the pure, all things are pure. Now, if you have a pure mind... Is everything pure? I think this can be explained in this way, what he's saying here. Let's read the rest of it first. But to them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now, we've had experience with people, and you may have been burned by this yourself. 
if you tend to be honest, then you anticipate and expect that other people will be like you, that they'll be honest as well. So you're judging them, in that sense, in a good way, based on a good characteristic of yours. Why wouldn't they be like you? You're honest. You're not a liar or a thief. And you sort of expect that out of others. And then lo and behold, you find out everybody's not like that. (laughs) There are liars and thieves out there. And you have to be very, very careful in trusting people sometimes because they may not be honest at all. But to you, if you are honest, and in that sense have purity of mind, then to you, everything's pure. Now, if you're not, and you're a liar and a thief, you kind of expect other people to be liars and thieves. And you'll get on to them quicker, because you'll recognize the same thing happening in them that you are. You'll, you'll see yourself in them if you're honest, and you'll see yourself in them if you're dishonest. Because that's how we as humans tend to judge things. And I think that some element of that's what Paul is telling Titus here. If you're of a pure mind, you're going to be thinking pure thoughts for the most part. And you're not going to be uh, accusing others of impurity if your thinking is pure because... You expect them to be that way. But if your thinking isn't what it ought to be, then nothing's pure to you because you're going to judge them by yourself to be impure. But we have to be very careful. Because people of an unpure mind, even it says their mind and their conscience is defiled because they just think impure thoughts. And... Maybe you have extremes here, people who tend to be pure in thought and those who tend to be uh, not so clean, but we're all somewhere in there. We all think pure thoughts, we all think impure thoughts, and that's why we need to be having our minds washed in the water of the Word of God, because that helps get rid of the unclean thoughts and bring in the pure thoughts. Because the living waters of the Scripture are what help cleanse and purge our minds from what human minds tend to be. But he was saying, recognize that uh, how you think is how you think others think, either good or bad. So if you're continually thinking somebody's bad, maybe you need to examine your mind and see if you have your own evil imaginations. Uh, because you think they do. Uh, he's, he's saying here, as you think is how you think others think. And you may be right and you may be wrong. That's why we have to be so careful. We do t- tend to judge others by ourselves. That's, I think, pretty well known by most people. Now, let's go to Micah 6. It's, it's in a way, it's kind of a follow-up on this thought here.
here in uh, chapter 6 of Micah, uh, let's start in verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the eternal require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Now, we've already covered those subjects in Matthew 5, but here they are back in, in Micah as well. But then we pick it up in verse 9. The eternal's voice cries to the city, and the man of wisdom shall see your name, hear you, the rod, and who has appointed it. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable? Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? So what this is saying here is, I going, am I going to call something pure and good that's evil and weigh it improperly? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore also will I make you sick in smiting you, in making you desolate because of your sins. So, sometimes people deceive themselves, and they think they're thinking correctly, and that what they're about to do is okay, or justifiable, or however you want to put it. But God says, don't do that. Use the correct balances, and the Word of God is the right balance for us to weigh anything, instead of using a corrupt way of thinking and deciding something is okay when it's not. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balance? No. It's not pure. The balance is wrong. Have you ever heard the story that a butcher's thumb weighs several pounds? <laughs> He's got a balance there. He's got a weight there to tell you how much that meat weighs. But there have been butchers that have been known to kind of put their thumb down behind the meat and just push that scale down a little bit more. It's not a, a just balance, not a just weight, because he weighs his thumb and charges you for it over and over again. That's the kind of thing he's talking about here. Or sometimes they can even set the scales wrong, like with gasoline pumps. The state comes around and checks those pumps on a regular basis, lest somebody set them at nine-tenths of a gallon, and you think you're getting a gallon. So... There's human nature for you, and that's why they have to have people to check those things. So God says, nah, use a just weight and balance, and don't call something pure that is not pure. Or where is that verse that doesn't come to mind to me right now? Where's the harlot wipes her face and says, I've not sinned? Uh, she, she deceives herself and says, well, that wasn't a sin. Same kind of thing. Proverbs 20. Proverbs 20, and down about verse 9, I want. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? I 
just quoted the, the lady that says, no, I haven't sinned. She has a way of deceiving herself or justifying it or saying I needed the money or whatever uh, for what she was doing. Who can say, I've made my heart clean? The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and if we want to adjudge our heart clean, we may be overlooking some things that are there that need some work still. I am pure from my sin. Then he uses the weights and measures again. Different weights and different measures, both of them alike, are abomination to the eternal. And he continues the thought a bit. Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. You look at a kid, and some kids seem honest and sincere, and some kids (laughs) have a different way of looking at things that is not the best way. And you can see that even from childhood. As the twig is bent, so grows the tree, in other words. So God says we're to be careful to teach our kids to have right attitudes and pure thoughts. But that human nature is always there, either just under or just above the surface. Uh, while we're back here, let's catch 30 from verse 12. Proverbs 30, verse 12. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from their filthiness. So he encourages us to be pure, and we read some of those last week where he says he will purify us in the fire with trials, troubles, difficulties, refine us. But there are some scriptures here warning us against considering ourselves pure when we may not be. In other words, let's be honest with ourselves and recognize when there is impurity, and then we know we need to work on that, instead of hiding our eyes and deceiving ourselves and saying, hey, I'm all right. You're impure, but I'm all right. That's the way we tend to be as humans, uh, a bit self-righteous. Isaiah 66. Let's go down to verse 17. Now, here at the end of Isaiah, he's talking about that time when the new heavens and new earth will be set up and the the kingdom of God and the millennium. And he's talking about some people that are still there. Remember there in the end of Zechariah, he says that there's some that won't come and keep the feast. They won't have rain. Even in the millennium, they're going to be rebels at first who do not want to submit to God in his way, and he's going to deal very harshly with them because he's not going to permit that kind of thought and attitude. So he's talking about the same kind of people here in verse 17. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, kind of hiding behind a tree, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Eternal. So here are people in the edge of the millennium, and there are people around the world in different uh, places. The Western world, even in Israel, there's an awful lot of pig-eating still going on. But in China and other places, they're still eating mice and rats and anything that slithers, crawls, scurries, or whatever that the Bible says is unclean. 
And they kind of hide behind the tree to do this as if no one will see because they know God is there and God is now ruling. And they're trying to get away with it, in other words, and purify themselves. Well, how are you going to purify something that is not pure? You can't make something clean that God made unclean. You can't do it because he's the boss and he's the one that made it the way it is. So, you're going to have some people that will rebel, and they're going to justify doing what they're doing. They're going to know, apparently, deep down inside, that it's wrong, or they wouldn't hide behind the tree in the garden to do it. So, when they're found out, they will be treated harshly, because God wants true purity, not self-deceit that we ourselves call pure. 1 John 3, verse 3. 1 John 3. Every man, in verse 3, that has this hope in him of the kingdom of God, purifies himself even as he is pure. So as we become converted, we realize that our human natural way of thinking is not the correct way. And we read in the scriptures of how we should think and act. And through his Holy Spirit, we do begin to have some purity in our minds. It begins to grow there. But it isn't complete. So even though we have God's Spirit... And even though we know how we ought to think for the most part, we have trouble living up to it. So he says, even if you've been purified by the Word of God and by His Spirit, realize that as a human being there's still work to be done. Always work to be done. So even though God may account you worthy of His grace, worthy of being considered pure, we all are far from perfect and far from pure. And therefore, we still have work to do. And that's every one of us every day. So, he says, even though you might be considered pure by God, and even to some degree in your own mind, if you're not deceiving yourself, recognize that there's always work to do to have the mind of God and of Christ that we're told to have. Let this mind be in you also that was in him. And his thoughts were always pure, all the time. So he is the standard that we go by. If we judge ourselves among ourselves and think, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good compared to him or her, uh, that don't work. It's not wise. It isn't good because the standard is God. And we all fall short of that, so why even consider each other in our judgments or our condemnation? All we can do is look at me and say, I'm not quite like God yet. I've still got work to do. And work on yourself instead of worrying about somebody else. Now we pray for each other, yes. But we don't put down and talk about each other in a negative way. That's what we don't do, because we all have egg on our face. Let's face it, every one of us does. 
So who is the egg to call the egg where? <laughs> it's futile, and it's not wise. Compare yourself to God. Put your head down and get to work on your problems instead of worrying about somebody else's. That's what he would have us do. Let's go to Psalm 12. This is, this is a good one on this subject. Psalm 12 and verse 6. I may have already referred to it in another place or two. The words of the eternal are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. So in the refining process for precious metals, sometimes you put them through and there are still impurities in there. It's not pure silver yet or pure gold. So you keep refining until it is pure. And that's the way God is with His words, and it's the way He was with the Scriptures. He's purified His word seven times. Now, there are people who will argue with that. They'll say, well, there's contradictions in the Bible. There's mistranslations in the Bible. There's problems there. That is not the way God inspired it. If he inspired a prophet or a writer in Hebrew or later in Greek, uh, he inspired them to say what was pure and what was right, and he was very careful what he put in their mind to write down. So if we see a mistranslation, that's not God. That's translators who made a mistake. If, like 1 John 5, 7, I think it is, there's a, a verse that's been added about the Trinity by a Catholic priest at some point. I think it was Jerome, was that who it did? I forget. doesn't matter. We find those things. And if they're inconsistent with the rest of the Scriptures, like that one is, then we realize, hey, somebody's messed with that. So all the Scriptures need to agree. And you know what? You and I have gone through this book cover to cover many, many times, have we not? And everything we see there fits. It doesn't matter what subject we might pick. I can go to Genesis, to Revelation, or anywhere in between, and I will find consistency, not contradiction, in what God says. Now, it's just like this baptism into the Trinity in Matthew 28, 20. And worldwide, years ago, we were all baptized in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or Ghost, as it says there in that translation. So, that's the way the church did it, because that's what it said. Now, how do we know what to do? We look at all the scriptures about baptism... And we find that every one of them but that one says we're to baptize in Christ's name only. It's the only name mentioned, not the Father, not the Holy Spirit or the Ghost, just Jesus or Christ or Emmanuel, whichever name we're using for it. But that being is the one that we're baptized into. So, Scripture interprets itself, in other words. Uh, and if you have ten that say this, then you might look at that one that says something differently and check the translation <coughs> and see if that's what the Greek or the uh, 
or the Hebrew actually says. And that's how we find those errors that God didn't put in there, but man is misinterpreted, or in some cases they're simply lying because they want it to fit their belief. So we can find those things, but the Word of God itself is purified seven times. And you know what? I, I trust this book. I've read it enough and gone through it, back and forth, enough, and compared scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, enough, that I know that what I read is going to be right. I trust it. And I trust the one who wrote it because it is impossible, utterly, mathematically impossible, to have this many writers in this many thousands of years of time to write things in their language 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, and some to have written it 2,000 years ago, and have them all agree. Impossible among men. But with the inspiration of God in any of those ages, working with different kinds of men, some scholars, some well-educated, some just fruit pickers, and he was able to get his truth through them and out to us and have Paul agree with Amos and Moses agree with Peter and even Peter and Paul agree. Because Paul was very highly educated and used esoteric language above that of fishermen. He used words sometimes that fishermen don't understand. And Peter even said some. Paul writes some things hard to understand because they are done in a very intellectual way. And God caused that so that modern-day Protestants might be taken and snared and deceived so that they don't just blatantly disobey and have to be destroyed for it. So he caused that. So you and I understand that. When I read Paul... There's a few things in there you and I have trouble understanding sometimes in Galatians or here and there. We have to go through it three times and still... Mm. Peter, pretty simple. Fisherman just wrote in everyday language. He's easy to understand. Well, when you have trouble with Paul, go read James and read Peter and read John and then read Paul in the light of what the others say and that which is confusing becomes clear because the others made it very clear in simple language. And therefore, you understand that they knew the truth and they knew what they were writing. And Paul knew the truth and knew what he was writing. It was me that had the problem understanding Paul. It was Peter who had the problem understanding Paul. So God has things like that in here. And Christ spoke in parables so that they could not understand, he said. But his words are pure, and you can trust them and believe them. Now, if he refines his word seven times, how do we do? You know, sometimes we just blurt out whatever comes to our mind right at the moment. And often it's not the right things. How many times have you and I said, oh, how did I let that come out? And then we're either apologizing or defending or whatever <clears throat> what we said. 
So God thinks about it, and then he speaks. And he thinks about it and purifies it seven times before he causes it to be written. So that you can know that it's, it's going to be right, it's going to be pure, you can trust it. Psalm 18, we'll hit a few of these while we're back here. Psalm 18, verse 26. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the presumptuous, you will show yourself presumptuous. For you will save the afflicted people, but will bring down high looks. So if we are pure in mind, God is going to treat us that way. With goodness and blessing and grace and love. But if we are presumptuous and arrogant and vain, he's going to treat us the same way. I mean, he's going to give us what we deserve. And then we pray for mercy and forgiveness and grace because we screw up. But overall, if we are pure thinking, he's going to treat us that way. And that's where we want it to be. Now, David's writing most of these psalms, and he's talking about purity uh, over and over again. Were David's thoughts always pure? No. He made some mistakes. He made all kinds of mistakes. But he loved God, and he was trying to do things God's way, but his human nature got in his way. And because he killed so much that he enjoyed war and killing, God didn't let him build the temple. So uh, David was a man after God's own heart. Whatever his hand found to do, he did it with his might, even killing <laughs> and in war. But there came to be an attitude there where he liked that. And God said, no, that's not pure. That's not right. And he restricted what he allowed David to do because of it. But overall, David was seeking and striving to serve God. It's just that he let his thoughts go sometimes the wrong place and got himself in trouble. And then he had to work his way out of it and work his way in his relationship with God to get him out of it. And lost the son in one case. But when he heard that the son has died, he says, okay, God's judgment's made. I trust God. No problem. I'll get up and go back to work. People expected him to cry and mourn and carry on after the son died. He just got up, dusted himself off, took a bath, and went to work. Why? He wasn't going to cry and moan and call God unfair. He knew he had sinned. He knew he had created a problem. So, I'm sure, as he laid there, waiting to see what God's judgment was on the Son, he did an awful lot of asking for forgiveness and mercy and grace and so on. And then... Once God made the judgment, which did not go the way David had wanted it to go. I'm sure his prayers were, please don't allow my son to die or don't kill him. But he trusted God, and when God said, okay, decision's made, kid's dead, David accepted that. That's how much he loved and trusted God. So he knew he had made a mistake, and he'd prayed about it and asked for forgiveness, but God's judgment still came. Now, David was forgiven. Let's understand that, too. He was forgiven. He's going to be the king of all Israel in the kingdom of God. So it doesn't matter what you've done or what you've been. God is able to forgive if we repent and clean up whatever it was. 
or whatever it is. He's there for us and loves us enough to put it under the blood of Christ and forget about it. That's what he's able and willing to do. That's how much he loves us. Ah, that we loved each other that much. You know what I mean? 19 verse 8. The statutes of the eternal are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the eternal is pure, enlightening the eyes. So when we read the words of God, they're pure, and they help us see the right way. Enlightenment, light, comes through his words. So if your thoughts are impure, the best thing you can do is read his words to help crowd out the impure and replace it with the pure. That's why David meditated on God's law so much. Because he realized it was there, it was correct, it was the way to go, but it wasn't always the way he wanted to go. Chapter 24, verse 4. He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the eternal and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So we have to cease from doing things that make our hands unclean in sin and purify our hearts. O double-minded is what uh, he says in one scripture. I think we've already read, or maybe not. We'll get to it. Let's go back to Proverbs just a little bit more. Chapter 15. Proverbs 15, and here I want about verse 26. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the eternal. He hates the thoughts of the wicked. But the words of the pure are pleasant words. If we're thinking good, we're not doing stinking thinking, but good thinking. To God, that's a pleasant thing. He reads our thoughts, he reads our lips, and if they're clean and pure and right, ah, to him, that's pleasing. And pleasing God ought to be the utmost goal and purpose in our lives. He's the sovereign of the universe, he made it all. He put us on it. He wants to share eternity with us, with eternal life. And he wants it to be a pleasant experience forever and ever. He doesn't want impurity and deceit and wretchedness and lies and all the stuff that goes on on this earth in his kingdom. So it's pleasant to him. When somebody comes to you and they have a pleasant report, a good report, they say something uplifting, that's kind of nice to hear. You know, when they come up to you and say, well, you know, you're kind of short, but that's okay because you're fat and ugly too. Um, That isn't real pleasant to hear, is it? But if they come up and say, wow, I'm sure glad to see you. You're just looking nice today. I'd I'd rather hear that, wouldn't you? Well, that's the way it is with God. When he hears and sees pureness, 
That's pleasant. He likes to see that. Verse 25 of 15. The Eternal will destroy the house of the proud, but He will establish the border of the widow. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination. Oh, we already read that. But the words of the pure are pleasant. I, I, I skipped up a verse. Uh, chapter 20. And verse 11. I guess we already read that from above about how a child is known, whether his thoughts be pure. Uh, Verse 8 of chapter 21. The way of man is presumptuous and strange. But as for the pure, his work is right. By nature, we're presumptuous, vain, egocentric, and strange. But the pure has good works, good right. He thinks right. He does right. Uh, Hebrews 10. Get back in the New Testament here. Hebrews 10. And here down in verse 22 I want. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, his word, the water that comes from God, from Christ, is pure. And he wants us to be purified by his word. I was introduced to uh, a series that came out on TV some time back. I don't know. Uh, I don't generally watch TV. I can sit there for months and I won't even turn it on, but this was a series done, and I haven't watched a TV series, drama or comedy or anything for so long I don't remember them. I don't even know who the stars are anymore. People can mention a name that's on TV or in the movies. I never heard of it. I have no idea or no clue who they are. Some of you are the same way. But anyway, this was billed as kind of a documentary whereby it was talking about uh, the situation in Montana, between the, the battle between the Indians and the ranchers and the politicians and the developers and the greenies and so on. It's called Yellowstone. And the scenery is beautiful. Beautiful scenery in that. So I started watching it. And then I began to realize it was just a New York thug movie with pretty scenery. <laughs> it was full of violence and sex and lying and stealing and corruption and politics. It's just the same old thing with pretty scenery. Now, do I need sex and violence introduced to my mind? Do I need lying politicians introduced to my mind and all the chicanery and stuff that goes on? That comes natural. I don't need that. Why should I need all that stuff? And that's what this scripture is saying. 
you, the pure water of the word, the good thoughts that come from God, that's the things we need to purify us. But if I'm sitting there watching a mafia thing where people are killing each other right and, right and left, full of violence, full of sex, full of naked people, that doesn't purify my mind. It doesn't clean it up. It causes it to want to go where all those people are going. And vicariously enjoy, or call it entertainment, of sin. Should I be entertained by sin? No. No, we have to be very, very careful what we hear or watch. John Reitenbaugh covered that in the Berean about three, four, five, six days ago. Some of the same thoughts about that. That if we enjoy and use for entertainment that which is sin... That's against God. We have to be very careful what we watch and take in, because it will not purify. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Sprinkled by the word, the blood of Christ. Not by sin. You know, Christ's blood was there to save us. The blood of gangsters was not shed to save us. <laughs> and watching that for entertainment, uh, no. Nah. I've, I've never seen the, what was that big one they had, the Godfather? Don't watch that. I never, I've never seen Star Wars either. I'm not going to ever see Star Wars. Or the Godfather. And I'm not going to see any more Yellowstone. Or anything like that, if I can help it. Because, even though it might be fun and entertaining, and be dramatic and get you going in some ways, it's just about sin. And that's not what I need. Not what I need for entertainment. So, I have to say, no, I'm not going there. Uh, whatever it might be. That's just one example that came to mind that uh, recently that I said, no, I don't need to watch any more of this. That's enough of that. No more of that. And let us consider one another to provoke to love and to good works. Well, that kind of a TV series is not provoke to love and good works. It provokes violence and thievery and sin of any and every kind. James 1. And here, uh, about verse 27. Now, you want to know what is right and good. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Here's something that's pure. It's undefiled. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. We're not to have the conduct, the thinking of the world, because that spots our character. It spots our lives. But something good to do is be sure we take care of the widow and the orphan. And you'll find many, many scriptures throughout the Bible that say to take care of the widow and the orphan to be sure that they're taken care of because there's no husband, there's no man to do it 
for them. And the rest of us need to pick up the slack wherever uh, we can and help them. So, that's the kind of purity he's looking for. You don't have time to lie and cheat and steal when you're visiting the widow and the orphan and taking them food or taking them uh, shopping or whatever they need. You're doing what you can to help people who do not have, in that sense, let's say, a complete life. Because something is missing, like someone to take care of it. Uh, chapter 3 of James and verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. When God disseminates his wisdom through the word, through however he brings it, the very first thing about it is that it's pure. Just as we read in Psalms about the... Uh, the word being purified seven times. If God sends it down to us, it's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So, if something's coming from God to a person, to you, to me, if it's the Word of God, if He's working through our mind and our mouth with someone, let's say, what comes from God to impart to someone else, if it comes from God indeed, it's going to be pure, it's going to be peaceable, not creating trouble and strife. Gentle, that's the way normally it is and should be. And easy to be entreated. How easy are we to entreat? Generally, not very much so. Anytime anybody mentions anything to us that might not be good or right or perfect to us, we prefer not to hear it. And we will defend our position. We'll lie to cover ourselves. We'll tell them they're wrong. We'll do anything rather than being easily entreated. You know, somebody comes and, and they, they say something about us. We automatically want to defend ourselves because we want to be right and we want to act right and we want to do right. And if someone points out that we're not, that hurts. And as truly it should. But do we say, I'll take that into consideration. Uh, I'll examine myself. You could be right. You know, that's the way you can end a lot of arguments. You could be right. You could be right. Implying that I'll think about it. And maybe you are right. And if you are, I'll change it. That's easy to be entreated. But when you entreat someone and they say, you're wrong, that's just your opinion. And they get angry, they get frustrated, they start defending themselves. That's not from God. An attitude that's pure from God is someone who's easy to be entreated. 
And that's hard to come by for every last one of us. We don't like to be wrong or told we're wrong. I don't know of any human being I've ever run into that like to be told they're wrong. Do you know any? Can I see the hands of those that know a bunch of those people? No, we don't like that. It's just our human nature is grabbed by it so fast <laughs> to defend the self. Like a cornered dog, you know. i got to defend myself. Now, now let's go to 1 Peter 1. What time is it getting to be? I'm all right, so for a little bit here. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now, this is kind of echoing what we read before, where he says, To the pure all things are pure, and to the impure all things are impure. Because he does say, You have been being purified by obeying the truth, through the Spirit of God, to have real love, not just acting like it. Have you ever seen people who just acted like they loved you? They acted like they love everybody. I've seen people in in religion all my life here and there who just they're just so full of love to your face, <laughs> but all kinds of stuff behind your back. Now that's they're acting like they love you when they don't. They're feigning it. God even talks as in Jeremiah about how Israel's love for him was feigned. It was fake. They were giving him lip service, but it wasn't from the heart. And that's what he's talking about right here. Okay, don't fake it, but truly love each other with a pure heart and fervently. Really love, with emotion, with feeling. Not just saying, yeah, I love everybody. Yeah, I love you too. You know, or however we put it. No, be sure that it's true love and that it's fervent and that we think well and of each other. That's what he's encouraging us to do. Well, I'm almost done with this, so I'm not going to continue it next week. I want to, I want to hit about five more here right quick. Let's go to Malachi 1. Uh, this won't take long. Malachi 1, down in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the sun, the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, says the Eternal of hosts. And then he condemns those who profane his name. But he's saying in the kingdom, it's not going to be that way. I'm not going to accept an offering that is not a pure offering from a pure heart. And that's why in the Old Testament, 
he wanted lambs brought without blemish. And even with people, if they were to be in the priesthood, for instance, they couldn't be a hare lip or stutter or have uh, wounded stones or several things he mentioned. Uh, they couldn't be lame or something of that nature and represent him in the priesthood because there were imperfections there. Maybe there were imperfections that that person could do nothing about. But God wanted those to represent him who were uh, whole, not deformed in some manner or form. And he says the same will be true with the animals. You know, you don't, you're not going to bring a three-legged lamb before God as a sacrifice or something of that nature. Because he is going to have things pure. Here he's talking about the kingdom of God that we're looking forward to. Zephaniah 3. Uh, here's a good one. Zephaniah 3. This is also looking to the future. In verse 9. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Eternal to serve Him with one consent. You know, the English language is just full of all kinds of bad things. Words that come right out of, straight out of paganism. Words that we use that don't reflect truth. We, we wish people luck. I don't believe in luck, do you? I ask God to bless and to protect, not live on luck. Time and chance happens to them all, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. And the only ones to whom it doesn't are the ones God is working with. So we don't pray for luck. This is my lucky day. I don't ask for good fortune. You know what fortune tellers do? (laughs) They read the lying tea leaves and they are connected to demons. I mean, there are all kinds of words that we use daily that are impure and incorrect and sometimes satanic. And yet we use them thinking they're okay. And we never even maybe think about the word as to its origin or its meaning, really, beyond how we use it in day-to-day language. Like some of the the way that people will change hell and damn and some of those things to... uh, uh, well, the Mormons do it with hell. It's now uh, I can't say what how they use it. Uh, they'll they'll say dang. They use dang a lot, which is just a corruption of damn. They use that. And what is it for hell? Heck. heck, that's the one. So we might say heck sometimes, and we use G's. Well, it's just a corruption of Jesus. So we're using God's name in vain through these simple things we say every day that we might not even think about. <clears throat> we need to examine them. And what am I really saying here? Did I, is that what I really meant to say? All those things uh, indicate our impure language. And he's going to give us one where all the words mean exactly what they say, and they're correct, no pagan origin, nothing bad, All good words. I look forward to that. 
Because even as I speak sometimes, I'm thinking, is, is that the right word to use there? Because so many are corrupted. They're just bad words. And over the years, I've tried to get a lot of those bad words out of my vocabulary and be sure I don't use them. But a lot of them we use daily and don't realize what we're saying. <coughs> Daniel 7. And here, verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down of men, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. And then he began a judgment of people here on the earth during the millennium. So, you read the same description in Revelation 1, where he's pure white. Now, we are of different races and different mixes, and none of us, when you look at us as humans, are pure white. We're not total albino. We're some color. Whether it be off-white, or brown, or black, or yellow, or whatever we happen to be a combination of, doesn't matter at all. But he depicts himself as white, and as righteous, because white is the absence of any color. And he wants our character to be completely without spot, or wrinkle, or wrong, or wrongdoing, or wrong thinking. So he uses white, and that's not has nothing to do with race. It has to do with conduct. You know, I'm not a white man. I'm kind of ruddy or sort of brownish or whatever, even though I'm called white. It's my character that needs to be white. There's where the problem lies. That's what we've got to work on so that we're absolutely pure in character and in thought. That's what he's looking for ultimately, and that's what he's going to have in his kingdom. And the fire. And what does he use fire for? Refining, purifying, making that clean. Let's get one more in Revelation 21. Here he's talking about his kingdom. And when his, when he and the Father are ruling here on the earth. Chapter 21, verse 18. Now here he's talking about the new Jerusalem. And it is made up of 144,000 people, and this is a physical description. The building of the wall was of jasper, and the city was of pure gold, like unto clear glass. Gold so pure that you could literally see through it, that pure. And he's talking about the 144,000 people who he calls earlier in this chapter, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven. So he depicts it both as a physical city, but of the beings that make it up, 12,000 from each tribe, or 144,000. So he's saying here, not just the physical likeness of the city, but the character of those who are there will have been upgraded from the impurity and the dross and the dregs 
of what we are today. We will have been transformed and made spirit beings who can no longer think anything impure. Wouldn't want to, wouldn't care to, aren't tempted to, because all of our thoughts will be continually upward instead of downward. Just the opposite of the way our minds work today. Absolutely, completely, totally pure. Not satanic, not worldly, not self, but godly. That's the way it's going to be in the kingdom of God. And he's going to have to lift us way above what we are today to be able to say that about us. But he can do it. And he promises he will do it. So that's the goal we're working for. And we need to be working daily to get as close to that as we can so that he says, yeah, I want that one. I can do that with that one. I can work with that one. We'll make this happen. That's the way he wants us to be thinking. Verse 21. Uh, <clears throat> the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. So that's not your normal asphalt or concrete or cobblestone. Absolute pure gold, all the streets. And again, referring to the people that it's depicting. And in verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 1, says the Father and the Son will be the temple of it up above. But here he says, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve manners of fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We have a nation today that is in total disarray, about to go into civil war. There's about to be millions of lives destroyed and blood in the streets from hundreds of millions of Americans. This nation is not going to be healed in this day and age. It's over. It's done. The judgment is made. The hundreds of millions are going to die. Only a little less than 10% will even survive when it's all done. But in the kingdom of God, it's going to turn around, and he's going to have water just as pure and clear as crystal coming out from under his throne to heal all the nations. Now, that's what needs to be on our mind, purity and healing not the violence and sex and lying and stealing and politics from Hollywood or Washington, for that matter. We need to get our minds on what is right and pure and true and good. Because that's the way it'll be in the kingdom of God. So instead of talking about prophecy a lot right now, and filling us in on all the sordid details of what's going on in the world, which we need to keep up on to some degree, but what do we need? What do you and I need? We need to be humble, to be meek, to be poor in spirit, to seek righteousness, and to uh, be pure in heart and mind. Those are the things that get God to say, I want them in my kingdom. That's what sets us apart and makes, makes us candidates for his physical protection during 
this holocaust that has already begun and will get worse. I don't see it around St. George much. I drive in and I drive out. I have been every day this week. It looks pretty peaceful. But then I hear somebody escorting an elderly couple out of the hospital. I guess whoever it had been checked out. And there's a hospital staff answering their question. And he says, well, a lot have been coming in, and there have been a lot of them dying. He's talking about COVID. Now, I'm not seeing it going in and out of there and driving through traffic, but something's going on. What do I need? I need a pure mind. I need pure activity. I don't need to be focusing on what Satan and the world is doing beyond following prophecy and seeing the leaves on the tree and so on. But we don't need to immerse ourselves in that. This is what can help us into the kingdom of God and life eternal in peace. That's why I'm going through Matthew 5. I've said it before and I'll say it again, I imagine. Because these are the things that we really, really need right now as things get worse in our world. 